C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the Millennial Divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood. Hello and welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I'm the Resident Youth, Maddie Yergi. And I'm Camp Adulthood, Shay Keats. And I am super excited for today's esteemed guest. Uh, Brittany Miller is a dear friend of mine whom I met many years ago in grad school. And she is currently a screenwriter living and working in Los Angeles. And we are so excited to talk to her about her career and all the many interesting things. Um, Brittany, would you mind saying hi and um, letting our, our listeners know how old you are, where you're living, and a little bit, I guess I already said where you're living, but um, a little bit about what you do. How old I am? How rude. I live well, in Los Angeles. You're <laughs> not supposed to reveal information. But we have to <laughs> legitimize you as a true millennial or else uh, theme of our past podcast. The truest millennial. I am 33 years old. Perfect. Um, I live in Los Angeles, as you said. I, I recently moved to East LA in Highland Park, which is the cool part of town I've decided because now that's where I live. And um, what was the other question? I'm sorry. Oh, just, you know, your own little elevator speech about who you are and what you do. Well, I am a comedy writer. As uh, you know, you said, I write for television. Um, I moved to L.A. almost four years ago now to pursue that. And before that, I was a professor and had many lives, I suppose. But yeah, now I'm a TV writer, which is exciting and cool and busy and unstable and wonderful and horrible and all of the things so I feel like you know it matches my personality and it gives me a lot to think about and it's been very excited exciting to to work in a world that most people only kind of view from the outside so I'm excited to talk to you guys about it and to talk to your listeners about it cool thank you Brittany all right Maddie would you like to begin with a toasty log for our campfire oh sure well So basically, just because my brain has been consumed with nothing but this for the past 48 hours, because I'm like so fascinated, I have to talk about it. Joe Rogan's Spotify deal. Oh, yes. Um, Brittany, have you heard about this? No, but Joe Rogan. I'll give you the... Yeah, he's a guy that people know. Um, I'll give (laughs) you the the short rundown. And um, Shay and I, it was funny because she DM'd me something about a different podcast. And we were kind of texting about the business of podcasts and stuff and like what's a good deal? What's a bad deal? How much people should be getting paid to like do what we're doing now kind of thing. And then um, like two days ago, Joe Rogan, who for those that don't know, he's a stand-up comedian. He also does UFC fight announcing. So you might know him from that. Um, But he has like a mega podcast. It's been like number one on iTunes before and just super popular. I actually... I've been like quoting the statistic because that's what I read like months ago that he had 60 million downloads a month. It's actually not true. He has not 190 million downloads a month, which is like unfathomable amount of people. Comparison, we get about a good month. We would maybe hit a thousand downloads. Maybe, maybe. Um, And he's always been self-produced. He has a studio that a studio space that um, is his own and he's you know, just crazy. Like he's even in this coronavirus times, he's still 
producing episodes because he bought like a testing machine so he's testing all of his guests and stuff like just an, another level of like celebrity podcasting whatever um i actually really full disclosure i really like the podcast i think he has really great skill for interviewing and he brings on a lot of diverse guests and stuff like that that i really enjoy um but so he basically right now he releases podcasts on itunes like the audio version then he also has a youtube channel where it's a video podcast where they just film them doing what we're doing talking to people into microphones and he just signed a deal with spotify that it's going to be kind of a phase thing we're starting in september the podcast will be available on spotify but still on other platforms right now it's not on spotify at all and then starting at the end of this year it will be exclusively both the video and the audio will be only on spotify so he's taking it off of youtube which for those that are familiar with joe rogan he's very not anti-youtube i mean it's obviously like the hand that feeds him but youtube has had a lot of scandals shall we say around um censorship of artists and taking people off the platform and you know demonetizing people and stuff like that so he's been very vocal and i'd imagine i haven't read anything to this effect but i'd imagine just because i follow his work that was part of why he wanted to get off youtube but still maintain the video podcast platform somewhere else but the the shocking amount of this which when shay first sent me that about this i was like i'm sure they paid him some ungodly amount of money but it was even more money than i even thought was possible they're paying him a hundred million dollars that's like sick baseball player mlb like alex rodriguez level money for a show that for those again love the show it's a show where he smokes weed and just talks to people and interviews yeah it's not like he doesn't have a staff of writers he doesn't have this huge production it's just microphones and he talks to people and shoots the shit for three hours twice a week so i was just like wow and obviously spotify i'm sure ran the numbers and they were like we can get they're really investing into a lot of podcasting i think they bought gimlet i'll fact check myself on that but they bought kind of a smaller Sounds right podcasting group and um have been investing in it that way so um it's just crazy that as I feel like when Shay and I, even a few years ago, started this podcast, podcasting was still, it felt saturated, but it still felt kind of new. But now we've, I think, with Joe Rogan being at the pinnacle, this is like the peak, like now podcasting is a real media form. So I just wanted to bring it up because I've just been thinking about it because it's so crazy to me. And also Brittany being in the creative space wanted to get your thoughts on these type of media deals. Oh, well, yeah, well, I think $100 million is a lot, you know, I mean, that's, but Joe Rogan has been in the business for a really long time, and he has a cult following, like, I feel, what was the show that he did where, like, people ate bugs? Do you Fear remember Factor. He was a host yeah, on Fear, Fear Factor. Factor. And, like, I feel like he made that show a show, you know, when it was really just, like, something crazy. So $100 million is a lot of money, Um but, uh, yeah, obviously Spotify thinks they can make much more than that off him. That's the more shocking part, is, like, an exponential of what, you know, a hundred million is what they think they can bring in. As far as like podcasting is concerned, I actually had a meeting with a production company about a podcast yesterday. Love so it. I think, you know, right now, my understanding, at least from talking to this production company and sort of like word around town is podcasting has seen a huge rise uh, in like serial storytelling, true crime, all of that stuff, you know, has come in uh, as well as like interview and talk shows. Um, but now what they're really trying to do is bring in like fictionalized 
content. So that's kind of now I'm starting to see that end. So I'm pitching on those kinds of ideas. Um, once they bring in fictionalized content, if it works, then you're going to see more huge deals, I think, for podcasting. And it'll turn into IP for something else. With Joe Rogan, I don't I think he's set with what he's doing. But like, if he were up and coming, it would be Joe Rogan's on Spotify. And then that's going to get turned into a TV deal. And then that's going to be a movie. And then someone's going to do a book. Like, everybody's just looking for ways to make money. But yeah, $100 million as an investment. I mean, creatives get paid, you know, they get paid what they get paid again, like on the fact that the company thinks they're going to make exponentially more. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're giving out. So that's yeah, it's wild, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any that's thoughts, Shay? Well, I mean, I think just what I was texting you earlier today, which was kind of my like my little like idealism <laughs> flower, was blooming. But you know, it makes me a little sad sometimes because I see. There are so many people out there producing really great content and they will never see a dime. And the amounts that you have to start bringing in, um, the number of listeners, and Maddie and I have talked about this before when we've talked about doing some kind of casual advertising and, and you know, what's fair to our advertisers if we would decide to bring on advertisers and, and to even begin to think about monetizing your podcast, you're, you're in the range of you know, thousands of downloads per episode. And that's even still iffy if it's, you know, ethical or right to start monetizing it independently. But in order to get looked at, I mean, you you really have to have an explosion of listeners. Um, and I wish that platforms like Spotify um, would spend a little more time you know, searching the many, many podcasts that are out there for the ones that are really awesome and the ones that are, you know, not done by a middle-aged white dude. You know, I think okay. I think there's just so much great content out there and I'd rather have seen them pay Joe Rogan $50 million and then spend $50 million on, you know, bringing new talent. And I think Joe Rogan still would have gotten a great deal because as Maddie said, he just smokes weed and talks to his friends yeah. and is probably on a microphone like this one that I'm using right now. That's true. That I yeah, no, I, I definitely don't want to downplay because I think Joe Rogan, obviously, like Brittany said, like he's been doing this for years. And I think his, he was one of like the OG podcasters. Yeah. And he's, so I don't want to like following. Yeah. yeah. And he, he does have a cult following. And so I don't want to downplay like his achievement, but I also agree. And I think like, I don't know enough about it. Like I think Spotify with the Gimlet purchase, like Gimlet was paying people who had like a million downloads. Uh, you know, I think there's a, a certain threshold, like you were saying, Shay, where you have to, to get on any type of platform, you have to be mm-hmm. so popular, but I think there's, they're they're trying to lit, hit it on the low end and the high end, but mm-hmm. I think it is interesting, Brittany, to see. Um, and you and I were texting about this, Shay, that um, YouTube is actually feeling this. Like I was reading, I think the Wall Street Journal did a deep dive into this. That the amount of other YouTubers that are either similar to Joe Rogan or like talk about similar stuff as him or have similar guests on like the YouTube recommended feed, which is a unique feature to YouTube that doesn't exist on a lot of podcasting platforms where, you know, like on iTunes, there's a recommended for you section where it shows the show, but on YouTube, it's an actual automatic playing feed. So if you're not paying attention, the next video that's not Joe Rogan will just play. And they're like, once those videos are gone, there's all these other smaller 
YouTube channels that aren't going to get any traffic and they're not in a place where they're going to get a Spotify deal. So those shows will just kind of like dry up. So it is really interesting how there are, even in this kind of like indie environment, there are still um, these big like tentpole names, um, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. I don't know. I'm interested in seeing if Joe Rogan's going to talk about it on his show. This is like a whole other tangent, but um, I don't know if he would have taken the deal for 50 million, even if that's, the amount of money like I think it took so much for him to even do it and it's a licensing Mm -hmm. deal so I don't think Spotify's in the business of like they want stuff that's already established that they don't have to do any work and then just like reap in the money like Brittany was saying so it's very interesting it is and it's it's actually interesting what you're saying about him leaving having fallout for the rest of the the smaller shows that were sort of attached to him Mm -hmm. um it, it reminds me of like a traditional cable model I mean the office goes off the air and all the shows around it that got bumps because it was on before or after they, they hurt too. You know, yeah. when South Park leaves Comedy Central, they're going to be fucked. You know, like yeah. what yeah. else, you know, I mean, they've got great, I love their programming generally speaking, but like they, that's their draw. That's what people, anybody who's still using cable, which I don't know, that's like three people, <laughs> I think it's universe now, but yeah. yeah, I think they'll feel it. So it's, it's interesting to watch it you know, podcasting has got big and gotten big enough now to follow in a, a little ways, like the trends of the other, you know, mm-hmm. media outlets. So yeah, it's established, man. It's here to yes. stay. We're not yeah. counterculture anymore. Well, no. excellent. Um, Shay, do you have a toasty campfire topic for us? Oh, I guess I was, I am kind of was going back and forth between two. Um, I guess I want to just note for our listeners that we are recording this on May 20th. So we are, I guess, somewhere in the midst of the coronavirus crisis still going on, but things are starting to reopen. So I have just been reading a lot about what that's going to look like and how that might go really well and how it might go really poorly. And I just wanted to kind of get your guys' thoughts on on what it looks like for you. I heard Los Angeles is now through July 1, stay at home. I New York is changing every day. Um, yeah. Oregon, they haven't given us a date, so who knows? Um, but yeah, so it's not really a, a hot topic, but uh, just was curious to it's hear from topic. everyone. It's the <laughs> only topic, right? Yeah, I think there's like, uh, you're right, New York is changing every day and it's very confusing like I just got an email from a salon that I don't go to anymore but I have gone to in the past in New York and they were like okay NYC is probably going to enter phase one in June and then phase two is when hair salons open so we're taking appointments for like July and August basically and I was like I've been following the news very very closely and I don't even know about the phases I don't know any of this so like it is very confusing just to follow what's happening Um, but I've definitely felt since the last time we talked about this, which was probably like a month or six weeks ago, like the vibe in New York is better. Like all the places that I've been going for to go stuff or cocktails, whatever, like have been opening more hours or opening more days. So I think they see that there's a, a a future, a hope that things will be reopen. Um, but it's still very much the same wearing the masks. You can't, you know venues aren't open that kind of thing um but it definitely feels like it's moving in a direction whereas before it was like we don't know how long this is gonna last um so that 
feels good to me. Um, I think the other thing, too, is just, like, people's interpersonal stuff. Like, last weekend, um, I have a friend that's moving to Florida. So her lease was up kind of mid-May, and then she's driving to Florida. And pre-coronavirus, this was always the plan. Um, And we decided that we were all going to meet up in Central Park. So some people lived walking distance, some people lived biking distance, no one took public transportation, and we were all just going to like sit in a circle six feet apart and, you know, eat our own little snacks, whatever, and say goodbye to her. And it was very interesting through the planning of that event. And then throughout the day, like how, how everything changed, like the beginning of the day, there was one friend that was like, well, we can't we have to all bring our own food and drinks because we can't share. Even if we bring our own glass, you're going to get too close in order to do the handoff of the stuff. And we can't hug at the beginning, like whatever, you know, everyone has their personal preferences. And then by the end of the day, we were all sharing. We ended up going back to someone's apartment after the park because we were having so much fun. We were hugging. We were, it was just like a normal day. You know what I mean? Girl. And that's not what you're supposed to be doing. No, I know. I'm, I'm being honest. I'm not, you know, I know. It's, looking no, for I judgment. I'm just saying this is what's happening all over the country is people assess the risk. Because once we got there, we were like, oh, everyone's been in their house for six weeks. Um, one girl had just gotten tested for antibodies and for the virus and tested positive for antibodies, negative for the virus. So like we were talking about that and um, we, which I won't go into again because we've talked about it in previous episodes. I'm also I also am convinced that I've already had it and stuff like that. So like we were just talking about it. And I think the more that people kind of test these boundaries, the less what the government is doing is going to matter, whether that's right or wrong. I'm not like trying to put a value judgment on it because it felt right to me at the time. But I understand that there's like a risk associated. So, again, this is all to say I feel like the vibe in New York is moving towards reopening. Um, Well, and I I don't know. I I think this is why I I wanted to bring this up because, you know, I I just like I've, I go back and forth between reading the news, you know, ravenously and then being like, I can't even look at it for three days. Um, But I was reading on Slate today and they were talking about um, quarantine bubbles, which is really interesting because Slate as a publication, um, which is a very liberal publication, they tend to, um, they've been They've been very judgy about people who, you know, do what you did, Maddie. And um, because I'm obsessed with their advice columns, I read Dear Prudence like four times a day. Um, But so I was really surprised to see this article and it was talking basically, Maddie, about what you said, uh, you know, about how people are now recommending that you create these quarantine bubbles as long as everyone has quarantined for 14 days beforehand, then, you know, in your group, it can be, you know, your best friends or your mom or your sister or whatever. It's just as long as you continue to quarantine and only see the people within, within that bubble. Which is never going to happen. Like it's all imperfect. No one's going to do that perfectly. Well, yeah, but, but it went into kind of the science behind it and, and some of the, epidemiology. um, So we can link to this article. But I just thought it was really interesting because now, right, it it was such a black and white for so long. Either you do it, you social distance and you're good or you don't do it and you're bad. Well, now we are opening up these these gray areas and having to contend with science and pseudoscience and things that are true and things that are not true and things that are gray. Um, so I, I guess I'm just a little bit, f- I'm just fascinated by seeing how everyone will, will navigate it going forward. I 
I do yeah. think we've reached the, the moment where the governing bodies, our mayors, our governors, whatever, mm-hmm. need to start telling people, giving people guidelines for opening up a yeah. circle, you know, and so yeah. that we're not relying on slate and that kind of thing. Because I do think, you know, you're balancing several needs. Um, there's economic needs, there's social needs, mm-hmm. and there's medical and, you know, uh, pandemic type of needs. Um, so I think that with guidance from a more official source that that helps people kind of decide where their risk level is going to fall mm-hmm. out of that guidance. Yeah. The same as when they told everybody to stay at home. It was like yeah. you could do exactly what they said and then you could feel like you knew what that was. Mm-hmm. And if you deviated, you could feel like you knew what that was. I think right now if it is too gray um, and, you know, people aren't going to stay in their homes forever and ever. That's it's not realistic. But I do think that having a little bit more of a uniform idea of, of yeah, how, how can we safely start to open up our own personal lives yeah. would be beneficial. And that way you can measure what you're doing against official advice, like you said, Shay, science, scientific advice and all of that stuff. I, I think that, you know, people reach a breaking point. I honestly, like, I've, I've had one person uh, who is in my quarantine bubble yeah well well two I guess my son but that's yeah you know clearly (laughs) clearly yeah (laughs) and then one other person um which has been okay for me I don't live near my family anyway so it's already tough to you know like I'm kind of used to not seeing them um but I my neighbors gave up weeks ago and they have parties all the time and it's funny because I lay in bed and I'm like on the one hand I'm like guys you shouldn't be doing this and on the other hand I'm like it's so nice to hear a party yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like sleeping so soundly because you're partying even though I'm like this is not the way but okay yeah it's hard it. <laughs> I feel very like I also feel very conflicted about it because I think we've all like no one's done it 100% perfectly and no one knows what the right answer is like I think generally we know okay wearing masks has some effect social distancing is probably the best thing you can do because then you're physically separating from people but when you're face to face and you're talking to people about their experiences it's hard to not go back to normal when things feel normal and that's kind of how I felt last weekend and it was definitely a breaking point of like there were people in the group who literally had not left their home in two months they got all of their groceries delivered had not been outside and they were like, I feel like I did the thing. I did it right. Everyone else has kind of been skirting it. I deserve to have some fun. And it's bad Doesn't to work me that way. That we're, well, <laughs> yeah, it is bad. But it's also like, I feel bad that it's like, well, like people are making choices. Like I have a friend that lives in my neighborhood and she at the beginning of this was like, I'm going to stay in New York. I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. I'm not leaving. I'm not fleeing. Like all that stuff we've heard about people fleeing New York, whatever. She's like, I'm not doing it. It's one less thing that I I don't have to think about leaving. I'm just going to do it. And now this past weekend, she drove to North Carolina and she's doing the whole thing where she's quarantining before she sees anyone, blah, blah, blah. She's being very safe. But I'm like, you were so adamant in March that you weren't going to leave and you weren't even thinking about leaving. And now two months later, the virus is still there. The science is still there that this isn't what, what we should be doing. But somehow there's something psychologically happening in people that they're making that choice. And I don't think it's necessarily like I, I don't I don't want to like put shame on top of like every other problem that we have right now, I guess, is where I am. Like I know what I'm comfortable with. Like I know I have my own boundaries. And like if someone 
comes too close to me or someone in my personal life is like, hey, I want to do this. How do you feel? And if I don't feel that way, I'm not I'm going to self-select out of it. But I can't pretend to know the nuances of everyone's life or everyone that's being like profiled in a magazine. You know what I mean? It's just like too exhausting to like police everyone outside of my own self right now. But I do agree with you, Brittany. I, I wish there was like a universal standard. But the problem was we don't know anything about this virus really or how it's transmitted. Like the six foot thing, it could come out that it's transmitted 18 feet away. And then we've all just been having this. It's not like the virus at five feet is really dangerous, but at seven feet, it's totally fine. You know, it's like it's all wishy-washy in my mind. I think there's some we common are, sense yeah, things. No, we, are in, we are in gray area. I actually, you know, it makes me think of, I think that what this is laying bare for us too, and it's not the only example, but is like a sense of community or not, or what is your sense of community? Um, because like it comes back to like the mask wearing thing. I think it's so interesting to me, different people's perspectives on wearing masks. I, I feel like the people who are so adamantly against wearing a mask think it's protecting them, mm-hmm. but it's actually protecting other people. So it's kind yeah. of this interesting thing of, do you think of, your the way you move through this space in this current time in the pandemic as something that is your personal individual choices that you're making or do you think that you're part of a community whole and i think people think different variations of that you know but with the masks it's particular i'm like if you're not wearing a mask and you're telling everybody else it's because i'm not afraid you don't understand the community aspect of what this mask is about <laughs> you know yeah. it's like we're we're we need to reach spaces here and come to some like logical agreement about what this is really about. Um, but it's been interesting to me to see how different people take that. And it, it, I think it comes up every time we have a community crisis, you know, or a, a public crisis. It's like, do people, to what extent do people feel like they're part of that community? And how does that affect the behavior that, you know, they engage in or don't engage in? Like, honestly, at the beginning, when they told us all to wear masks, I was still under the impression that it was for yourself. So if I forgot, I didn't feel bad. You know, because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, shit, well, that's on me. Like, but then when somebody was like, no, it, this is for other people. I'm like, oh, fuck, well, now I'm not going to forget. Yeah. You know, because now it's like, oh, well, then that makes me feel like I don't want to be the asshole out there being like breathing on people. Yeah. You know, totally. I didn't realize that's what we were doing. So, yeah, yeah it, it's interesting. It's weird times. I do think empathy is important. You know, I think people are. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, too, you're not going to control anybody else. So what does your community look like? It's like, here are the individuals in your community can, you know, do they band together? Do they not? You can't really make them. I do think that there's something to be said, though, for like, positive peer pressure. Because I think that's, that actually does help us come together as a community. But it's like, where's the line between shaming someone and being mean? And the positive peer pressure that we need to do things collectively. Yeah, it's a very fine line for sure. What about you, Shay, in Portland? How has it been? I mean, there's really nothing new since the last time we talked about this. Um, I mean, there's definitely they're requiring masks in a lot more establishments if you go out and about. Um, I mean, luckily, Portland was hit kind of early and then hasn't been hit that hard after that first outbreak. I mean, knock on wood, I get in trouble every time I knock on things when Brittany, when we're having this podcast, because I mess up the sound quality. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I think right now, I mean, the the problem with Portland, which you see played out in so many issues um, in the city is that it is you, you have a very kind of liberal base in Portland, and then you have a very conservative base outside of Portland. So there's a lot of you know, I think that's where we're getting into that debate that Brittany talked about, right? Where it, there's so many people who are like, well, I don't need to wear a mask because that's on me. Um, 
I, the government can't tell me to wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera, where then you have people who are who are more committed to that kind of community aspect who, you know, everyone should wear a mask and everyone should do this and um, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, honestly, I, I feel like it's all the same, you know, restaurants are closed, wear a mask at Costco. Yeah. Don't be an asshole. Yeah. You've said that you haven't really changed anything since March, but as things open up, like, do you think that you're going to change your behavior? Or you're just going to do the same stuff that you did in March until it's like a hundred percent correct. Um, well, or 100% I mean, I think, open or whatever. Uh, as things open up, um, I'll definitely start seeing my family that is in the area. Again, we've we've both been been self isolating, staying at home, all the different words. Um, so we'll probably integrate our households first and go from there. I recently went on a walk with a friend, and we both wore masks and stayed six feet apart. So that was it. Like, felt very naughty, but it was. You know, but I, in LA anyway, they tell people that that's the total yeah. acceptable behavior. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I mean, I think... I don't, I that- mean, more fuel for you guys to shame me. I don't, I if I'm just walking by myself on the streets of New York, I don't wear a mask outside. Or if I'm sitting in the park by myself reading a book, I don't wear a mask. If I'm in a group, yeah. or if I go if I go into an establishment, 100%, I do it. Yeah. Um, but if I'm in a group, I always wear the mask and then assess... How do we feel? Obviously, staying six feet apart, but I don't wear it every time I go outside, just by default. I don't know what I would do if I were still in New York, walking around. But here, I mean, certainly, I don't wear it if I'm like going on a walk around my neighborhood. But I also am no longer. My neighborhood is full of kids and old people, so the streets can get actually quite crowded when everybody, like, the rain stops for five minutes and everybody rushes outside. And I, I don't. I make the choice to not go outside at those times. Like if I need some fresh air, I'll go out in the rain or I'll go someplace that I know is a little less crowded. Um, so I think it's more just being aware of things like that. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think some of the choices that we're going to have to make, you know, for example, the winery that we always go to is opening back up with reservations this weekend. And my cousin was like, should we go? And it was supposed to be your you know, your wedding reception this weekend, we can go do something, it'll be fun. And I was like, I'm just not quite, I was like, maybe in a couple weeks, but I was like, this weekend, the first weekend, it's open, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, You know, so I I think it'll just be yeah, it all proves, I think, Shay, what you just said, just proves the point that it's like, it's so individual, like, there's nothing about the science that's going to change in the next two weeks. It's just people's individual this is what I feel comfortable with, which is very interesting. And I do, I do think, I mean, one of the other kind of hot topics I was thinking about bringing to the board was about, you know, how small restaurants and towns just can't, so many of them are shutting and um, particularly coffee shops, which are the hub of community in so many small towns. And it's very sad. So, you know, it, there it's pretty much been proven at this point that the, the virus isn't foodborne. So one thing that I do really want to kind of double down my efforts on is okay when I can order when I like I I now feel comfortable ordering in food so um you know we don't eat out that much to begin with but I think you know I now have a reason to besides the fact that I'm fucking sick of cooking every goddamn (laughs) meal um you know to start yeah right um to really start adding that into my my weekly kind of routine because it's something that I can do for my community that's that's safe and and supportive so yeah well 
that was we went off on that one so that was good um so Brittany, do you have a hot topic or would you like to dive into the interview um, my hot topic was the masks thing. So oh, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Killing two birds so, with one stone. Yeah. Did you have any final comments on mask wear? Um, I'm excited that people are making it fashion, darling. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, I, anytime we can add a new accessory to our <laughs> lives. Like, I'm not fighting the mask both because, like, I care, blah, blah, blah. But also, I'm like, it's cute. I got a cute one yeah. I made on my headscarf. Like, oh, my I'm God. I love it. I'm going to be I... I need to buy some new ones because right now I have like one homemade one that is not doing it for me and then some like hospital masks and no. those get gross. Yeah. So I found there's so many cute ones on Etsy. Where are you buying? Where are you guys buying on Etsy? Just buy them on Etsy? Is I that got the two from ladies on Etsy. Also, my aunt was made some like personalized ones and Jenny and her roommate. Like actually with your put- monogram on it? No, like. Like oh, she made like God. for my dad, she made like a Michigan football. She got like a oh. like a print that was like the U of M thing or whatever, and she uh, made one for me that was like the NYU logo on it. So like that's kind of cute. Um, so yeah, so she tried. It was cute, but like Jenny and her roommate bought a sewing machine, and they actually said that there's very easy like printable. Like they're they're neither of them are sewers, and they were able to make their own masks like yeah. actual like accordion ones very easy yeah. yeah yeah i made mine it was not hard i hand sewed it with just needle and like you know extra thread and it, yeah. it yeah. was just fun it's just yeah it's it's really easy you can make some without even sewing although i don't like those ones but like yeah yeah it's, it's cute so yeah cool. you know. so that's a good idea it. but etsy i was perusing and that's where i got mine that i really like and there's some real cute ones um excellent awesome masks as fashion we love it yes so um all right, so diving into the interview portion. So, um, Brittany, you mentioned that you were a college professor, and now you're writing. Like, maybe, maybe give us more than your elevator pitch of like how um, dive in how you, this crazy writer life. Yeah, like what has your writing journey been like? Like, once you graduated from school, what has the journey been like to get you to where you are in LA writing for TV? Yeah, sure. So I, as many writers, was like writing and reading as a child, you know, Um, and I graduated undergrad with a degree in English. And my senior project was a a book. I wrote a a memoir, as one would at 21. Um, (laughs) It was fun. It was about losing my virginity as an evangelical and then getting kicked out of like my church group. So that was it was an exciting adventure. Um, but I thought I would become a famous novelist immediately because I was 21 again, and it didn't happen within the first 1.25 years. So I was like, fuck it, I'm going to be an academic. I'm going to be a professor. Uh, so I started pursuing um, graduate school. And meanwhile, I was working as a copywriter for an automotive retailer and then for a cardiovascular research journal. So, you know, very eclectic. Uh, but I got into NYU where I met Shay and got my master's degree in English and published a paper and like really got into like that academic world. Um, applied to a PhD programs, got into USC, but right before I went, I actually taught a community college class for the first time at Foothill College in the Bay Area. Uh, and it was such a great experience that when I went to the PhD program, which was also amazing because like, you know, you're getting paid to like, just look at your belly button and read books, which is <laughs> the dream of dreams. Um, but I was like, well, shit, like I could spend the next five years here getting a PhD and letting the interest accrue on my student loans from NYU <laughs> or 
I could just leave and go teach community college right now and start making like some better money or whatever. Try like, try like get the career going in that same amount of time. So that's what I did. And I taught at a school called Las Casitas the longest. Um, I got, loved my students, loved the work. Like I taught rhetoric and creative writing and just everything. It was, it was really, really cool. Um, but it's a tough career because you have to adjunct for a really long time before they give you a shot at a full-time job. And even if you land a full-time job, it's just like for Bay Area living or metropolitan living, it's not enough money for like mm -hmm. a family and all these things that you want to have. So once again, I was sitting with myself being like, all right, I don't know about this. Um, if I'm going to have a career that's super unstable, why don't I like really give myself a shot as a writer again and see what I can do? Um, I have an aunt that works in Hollywood, so it wasn't like as big of a jump for me as it is for some people. Like I wasn't flying completely blind. Um, but I was like, all right, I'm going to quit all my jobs for the first time since I'm 15 years old and I'm going to write and I'm going to see what happens. So I did that. Um, I was married at the time. So my then husband got a job in LA, followed him. I had the luxury of him paying most of our bills. So I was writing and then money was running out. So I was like, should I need to get another job again? And then right at that time, my aunt's, um, she was running the Carmichael show, which was a show on NBC for three years and her assistant quit. Uh, and she was like, Hey, do you want to step in? Like, I don't know if that's something you're interested in. And I was like, well, yes. So I got in the door that way and it was amazing. Which I got to meet all of these cool people. David Allen Greer, who's like, was one of my favorites growing up, um, was on the show. So I got to know him and start to become like, so those surreal experiences where you're like, is this my life right now? Like, you know, I wrote some lines for television. They got shot. They got made. You can watch them now on Netflix. You know, I'm like, wow, this is so crazy. So I fell in love with like TV writing as a genre and was like, all right, let me let me give it my energy and see what happens. So I assisted for a couple of years, um, like two years, got pregnant, had a baby, of course, because I can only never do one thing at a time. <laughs> um, and then I got my first job uh, on a show that ended up getting canceled before it aired. <laughs> Alas. Summer, but still cool. I got to meet Jordan Sparks again, like very uh. exciting. Um, and then I got staffed on a second show a couple of months later while I was going through a divorce, which again, can't do one thing. Um, so that was much better. And that show is called woke and it should be out in, I think June on Hulu. Um, God, I'm so excited. I can't even wait. I'm excited. Yeah. I don't, you know, you never know, but I'm excited. I got two episodes. I co-wrote the finale and I wrote a standalone episode and it was super fun and just very edifying and like. You know, I always wondered, I think, if I could really cut it as a creative only. I knew I could cut it as a teacher and teaching is wonderful. But I was like, I don't know, do I have what it takes to actually be like the one that's making the thing? And, you know, at least right now, it's like, yeah, for now, <laughs> hopefully in the future, too. But since then, I've been taking a lot of meetings with production companies, writing my original work, just like trying to just get the wheels turning um it is a tumultuous industry so and now i'm a single mom so that's not what i planned and um maybe i'm a little grateful that i didn't know that's what it was going to be because i don't know that i would have made the leap if i thought i was really gonna have to do it all on my own um but i'm happy where i am now and we'll see what happens well, coronavirus is throwing a wrench in the plans but like that will resolve i think sometime <laughs> sometime sometime so can you talk a little bit about that experience? I know it was something that you, when we were kind of briefing before that you were wanted to talk about is your experience as a single mom in Hollywood and um, what that looks like for you and 
I was about to say something really cheesy, like, how do you juggle having it all? But, oh my God. you know. You don't ever feel like you have anything. Yeah, I mean, I hear that. Um, it's, yeah, it, you know, there, there are single moms in Hollywood, not a lot, you know, and there's not, a, there's not a ton of moms who are actively writing in the room. So I definitely know some moms, most of them are coupled. Um, I've met a couple of people who are single. For me, it's like, if you're working, it's, it's pretty good. And if you have a show, the thing that that's hard is that the show hours will vary depending on who the showrunner is. Mm-hmm. So I was very lucky in my last job that the showrunner was a mother and she wanted to get home and have dinner with her child. So we got to leave and I got to go home and have dinner with my child. Yeah. But I also know, you know, like some of the other jobs I assisted on or whatever, like they would stay till midnight to 3 a.m. And what do you do in that case? I haven't faced that yet, but it scares mm-hmm. me a little bit because in those cases, it's like you have to earn enough money to have a nanny. And to have a nanny, you have to be making money consistently because you can't just be like, well, I'm working, come over. And, and it, then, well, I'm not working, go away. Exactly. And it can't also just be an after-school nanny. It has to be a, a full-time a nanny. Yeah, you yeah, can really, the night. Somebody yeah. could really take you on. So it's, it's I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that it's worked out so far. I'm trying not to freak out about how it might look if I get in a different situation and just sort of let that come. So I guess that's my strategy is like, I am working on myself a lot right now and like trying to be more of the type of person that like lets things come and doesn't worry ahead of time, which is very difficult and not something yeah. I like to do. <laughs> but I think it's the only way that I can survive the precarity of the moment um, and actually make clear headed decisions for the present. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for now, like my son is enrolled in uh, daycare and I keep him in daycare even when I'm not technically on the job, both because I have to write. But mm-hmm. also because it keeps his life consistent when mine is, isn't. It's less, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a juggle, you know. I think the one the really I I have joint custody with my uh, ex, so that I'm in a different position than some single mom. Not I don't know any, but I'm sure there are have their kid the entire time. I don't know about them. I don't know. Yeah. What, I don't know. That's I don't know terrible. how they do it. I, maybe their parents live close by. Something because like yeah. I don't know how that would work. For me, the fact that I have days where I don't have my son, I get a lot of work done then, I, you know, have downtime then, I see friends then, I, you know, bang dudes then, whatever, whatever I'm up to, you know? Love it. That helps me stay sane. Yeah. Do you have any protections? Like, are you part of a union or anything? I'm like, or do you have an agent? Like, how do you go from gig to gig, especially if it's a show that maybe it's only one season or like you mentioned, there's a show that doesn't even get picked up on air. So you know that there's not a prospect of a second season or whatever. So how do you navigate kind of planning that trajectory? And is there any protection or are, are you just completely on your own? Yeah. Um, so I have managers um, and I'm part of a union, the WGA writers guild of America West. They have an East version too. Um so the union provides protections in the in the form of the wages you get paid when you're working are very high. And they're high because they're meant to see you through the uncertain times, basically. Um, and the union fought very hard, went on strike, you know, was constantly fighting for those things. And I'm super grateful for that. They also have health care that doesn't go away when you stop working. So long as you meet a threshold, like quarter to quarter of money that you had earned, it projects for a year. So that's another protection for me that's huge, obviously, as a mother, too, where it's like, 
if this was the kind of situation where like in a normal job, you lose your job 30 days later, you lose your healthcare, it would be untenable. But I don't have to deal with that. The healthcare is super cheap. So that's cool too. My managers, I got funny other odd stories. When I first started working, I got signed on with an agency, UTA, which is like the top agency for comedy writers. And it was like a dream. And I had oh, this wow. agent, two agents. Hey, I was, it was amazing. Like I had two agents that I loved that were so great. I was like, this is going to be awesome. And then like three months later, the WGA, my union, who I also love, um, decided that we couldn't work with agencies anymore because of blah, blah, blah. Your listeners mm. can look it up. It's a whole thing. So yeah. we had to all fire our agents. <sighs> and then, yeah. So as a young writer, you're like, well, damn, uh, you really are. Yeah. Like, you really hustle yourself for your first couple of jobs. And sometimes all of your jobs, like you pump your own network because it's so competitive that you kind of need somebody who likes you to hire you know? Yeah. And like, you can get hired blind, but especially at first, that's not usually how it goes. It's usually like, you worked with somebody as an assistant, now they have a show, they're in the position to hire you, they love you, they read you soon, blah, blah, blah. So I had the agents, but I had to fire my agents. But then I got my second job because it was a woman that I knew. So she hired me. And then a management company, like all the management companies in town started coming to writers and being like, well, you don't have agents now. Maybe this is the time for a manager. Which and is maybe, can you explain the for the noobs yeah. like me, what's the difference between a manager and an agent? Lord. I mean, that's the right question. Nothing, <laughs> everything. Like, so manage. All I know manage- is from watching Entourage like 10 years ago. So <laughs> <laughs> that's all I know. Well, that's, I mean, that, that's it. That's basically. No, it's, it, you know, do I really know? Not really. Like, I think. <laughs> Traditionally, it's like your managers are supposed to be a lot about career development. So they're kind of in it with you in a more detailed way about developing your portfolio and like what kind of voice you're going to to like cultivate for yourself. And and traditionally speaking, I think they're meant to be a bit more hands on with you versus Mm -hmm. agencies. Traditionally speaking, we're a bit more about like placing you and connecting you and that kind of thing. But in my experience, my agents were very hands-on and my managers are very connected. So it, to me, is the difference is that UTA was a huge company and had their hand in everything. Whereas my current management company, which I love, writ large, shout out, Lou, they're amazing. Um, they're, but they're small. So, you know, you're just, but it hasn't really affected me right now in, in so far as like they're small, but they're super committed to me too because they're small. So like, I feel like I'm getting all kinds of, I'm getting all of the same meetings that I would have gotten anyway, I think. So yeah. for me, it's not that, it's not that big of a difference. But the the thing that I don't know if people know or don't know is that you pay them 10%. Yeah. You pay your agent 10%, I have a lawyer, I pay 5%, the union takes one and a half percent, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> Plus you still have to pay like taxes and stuff. And you pay taxes. But again, the WGA negotiated us good salaries, so I am not going to complain. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is so interesting. I, I, I'm just so fascinated by this whole system and how it works because in one sense, I feel like having the manager or the agent and the lawyer and the union available to you, I mean, what what a huge advantage. But then, you know, looking at this from like an entrepreneurial standpoint, I'm like, you have all the crap of having to work for somebody else and all the crap of being an entrepreneur. Like, (laughs) where are you winning? (laughs) But um, I mean, it's just, it's a really unique business model. Um, But you really are hustling for yourself at the end of the day. I mean, you have these people to help you, but they, they sign you on because they think you're going to make them money. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Everybody's Mm -hmm. in it to make themselves money. Like there's no alternate, which is great. I'm fine. I want my agents to think, yeah cash cow like let's make that happen you know um but you're still in charge of like how much are you going to write 
the, the thing that I love, the, the insecurity is very tough about the business. But the thing that I love is also the insecurity in that you have the freedom at any time to write a movie and sell it, to write a show and sell it, to write a podcast and sell it. You know, like you can have as many opportunities as you're willing to work for, which is not to say that everything's going to pan out because most stuff doesn't. But it's nice for someone like me versus like, you know, you're in a corporate situation and you're waiting for a slot to open up so you might get promoted. That's not the case here. Yeah. And you're not you bound. Know, there's a lot more latitude. Yeah. And you're not bound to any network or no. studio or it's anything contract. like that. It's contract. Yeah. yeah. Based. So That's like, awesome. I mean, there's, there's, there's deals when you get later on in your career that I would love to have called overall deals. Mm-hmm. And that's where like a studio will hire you mm-hmm. for the studio on a contract basis for like from one to three years. I think it's usually mm-hmm. a three-year term. Then they pay you out a nice sum guaranteed for those three years, typically because they think then they're going to think you're an investment for them. And that if you keep staffing on their show, you know, like they can put you mm-hmm. on their shows. So you're not going to leave and go to somebody else's show where they know, you know, it's a better deal for them to have you on as a consistent, like, go to hired gun than it is to have you out there floating around and writers love it too obviously because it does suck to it does suck to look for yeah. jobs every six months like it does and most shows yeah. don't go into season two like the show yeah. you know i'm not gonna talk about my show but like most shows i'll just say won't go into yeah. season two and like even if they do you don't know that until mm-hmm. like a day before, you know you're like oh god by the way season two go and so you are attached to your show if it does go to a season two like you have an option like you're supposed to go with that show Mm-hmm. No matter what, but you get a good lawyer, you can kind of get out of anything, to be honest. Yeah. So. yeah. I love that. What is it so like in the room? Like, I just watched Black AF on Netflix. I don't know if you saw that one, but it's about um, the guy that is in charge of Blackish. I'm blanking on his name, but there's a lot of scenes. Yes. yes thank you. Um, and there's a lot of scenes in that show of like his writer's room that's obviously a, f- a fictionalized dramatization of what it's like but what is when you're staffed on a show what is kind of the typical day or what what happens like behind the scenes of our favorite pieces of dialogue that really like that's what the culture is like you think about your favorite movie lines and your favorite tv shows and that's the cultural touchstones that we have so it's a really important job but like how does the how does the sausage get made the sausage. Well, I can't tell all our secrets. <laughs> oh, get restraining orders and fired. It's it's a group of hooligans every time. Like it's 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 a cool. I mean, it's a dream job. I really love it. Uh, typically, you don't start till ten or ten thirty because writers don't like to get up early. That's not what they say. That's what I say. What they say is that because you never know how late you're going to work, you need some amount of time in the morning to like deal with your life. Yeah. And so you start a little bit later. Um, you show up, this is going to make everybody mad. You show up, if it's a well, decently funded show, they pay for your lunch. Uh, and you like get together in the room, you sit around a conference table, there's whiteboards everywhere and you shoot the shit a lot. And it seems like you're wasting time, but really what you're trying to do is get like creative sparks going, you know? So you'll talk about the show, you'll talk about the characters, you'll start planning things out and then you'll have like toys on the table and you'll start some conversation about something dumb about the Rubik's cube or this and that. And honestly, some of the best jokes will come out of the nonsense that people do in the room. We'll have like, I've been in many rooms where you start the day with hot topics, kind of like you guys do on your podcast and everybody just kind of riffs on what's on top of mind so that we can feel like we're staying current before we start, you know, writing a show that's supposed to be a cultural touchstone or whatever. God, that is a sad 
It's true, but it's a scary proposition. I feel like nobody nobody wants to think that when they're in the room because you just like die of like the responsibility. Of yeah. All. And how did uh, but you? It's, it's, but it's nonsense, you know. It's like it's a room of comedians. I, like I mean, a drama is maybe different, but for me, it's like it's a room of comedians, a room of people who grew up uh, using humor as defense mechanisms and ways to cope with life. Um, typically, have had crazy family experiences, and so we're all just sort of silly and competitive and intrusive and delightful I'd like to think how did you know that you wanted to write for comedy and not drama or do you have a comedy Mm, background or anything I thought I would do drama at first because I thought I wasn't funny and then I started talking to my family about that and they were all like you're insane so it was sort of like other people kind of telling me what was funny about me. I think sometimes, you know, you're just you. You don't really always have a perspective on yourself and like how you measure up to other people. But I'm not the funniest person in my family. So to me, I'm not that funny. But then out and about in the world, it's like, oh, well, actually, I guess I grew up in a frat house, basically, with all these crazy people. So I suppose I've developed some humor. So I I, I went the comedy way uh, on the encouragement of others to be honest. And as I started doing it, I realized that that was where I should be. Is it very um, siloed? Ideas, but Is it very siloed? Not. Like, can drama writers write for comedy and vice versa? Like, could you get a job writing for drama or not really at this point? I could, actually. It used to be very siloed, and it still kind of is, but there's now all of these shows that are kind of both, like the yeah. dramedy, you know? So Love a good dramedy. more blending than before. Yeah, I do too. Um, so I think it, it's changed now. The main difference between dramas and comedies is the comedies are half hour and dramas are an hour. But now with dramedies, they're a half hour. So people can kind of bridge the bridge the divide. Like, God help me if I write an hour long show. <laughs> I could. Anybody out there listening? Oh, you can hire me yeah. for an hour. Brittany can write hour. as long. She can write an hour and a half write, long I mean, show. I've written novels, baby. Like, yeah. No, but and they're I very like good. I've read them. Hour. I like to tell a story as quickly as possible. Like, yeah. that's I, another reason why I like comedy. But I think it's interesting just, you know, I, I'm sure for you as as a creative, you know, do you want to work on your traditional sitcom, right? Or which there are many doing really interesting things out there. Or, I mean, I've been very into the dramedies lately. So I don't know. So I guess my question for you is what is your what is your dream show right now? If you could write on any show, what would it be? Oh, it's such a good question. It's such like a hard question. I feel like I'm still working out with myself exactly where my strengths lie. My dream show is no longer on the air. That was Broad City. If it was still on the air, it's an easy yeah. answer. Like, Broad City is the best. I still watch it. It's amazing. Um, I don't have a show that is as favorite for me right now as that one was. But I love Big Mouth on one side of the spectrum. Yes. Uh, animated shows on Netflix. Nick Kroll. Hilarious. I... I, that show intimidates me a little bit because it's so good, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know? So it's like, I would love to write on that show, but I would also be in a fucking panic writing on that show yeah. because of like, all of these people, there's Jenny Slate, like everybody on right. the show. Is I was going to say, do you feel like the writer's rooms that you've been in? Because I think that there's a lot of this like, like when I think of like famous writers, I think about like Shonda Rhimes, like she's in the writer's room. Like, are there these big personalities, like Nick Kroll and John Mulaney write for that show. So like, is yeah. that intimidating? And, or yes. do they feel like, do they feel like they're above it all? Cause they're also kind of the show writer or do they feel like they're part of the room? 
You know, it, it depends on the person, honestly. I've been in rooms oh, yeah. where the Tell big us name... all the inside Hollywood gossip about who sucks Girl, to work I with. I gotta work in this town. I know. <laughs> I know. I promised myself I wouldn't ask that question, but... Matt, no, I think you love celebrity gossip though. like none other. There's, sometimes, there's a big, sometimes there's a big name attached to your show, but they don't actually write for your mm-hmm. show. Like, they're a writer on your show, technically, but they're not there all the time. So they'll pop in, and you have to drop everything, and you gotta do the thing, and listen, and set, you know, and, and like, bow down. Uh, but they're not there all the time. There are shows where the big kahuna is crazy, and a psychopath. But they're talented, so you're like, well, thank you for a show that went five seasons. You know, like, what are you really gonna say? And then there are people who are huge, that don't have an ego at all, that are delightful to work with, and... Well, I wouldn't say don't have an ego at all. There's nobody in the writer's room that doesn't have an ego at all. So yeah. myself included. But, you know, they're very nice and they're generous and they're super committed to the craft. So they, they're egalitarian and they don't really care about hierarchy or status or that people are paying mm-hmm. attention to them. I would love to think and I would hope to think and I haven't heard anything different to this effect that Nick Kroll uh, is one of those types because I'm secretly like very in love with him and so I want him to be great. Um, and the energy of that show feels like it's a nice room. Um it could be a nightmare. Who knows? But yeah, it just, it, it really depends. Like the hours depend on the person that you're working with and what their personality is like and whether or not they're in a good spot in their life. Yeah. Also. <laughs> How is it writing in a group? Cause I've always thought about this, like coming off of novel writing where you always, like I've read a lot about novel writers and it's very like you go in a hole for three months and you don't talk to anyone and it's like very solitary and the same thing, like screenplays and movie writing like you write it and then you sell it for the most part, but write it in a writer's room for a TV show. It's an ongoing process and it's not individual. Like do Mm -hmm. you maybe for my dumb brain that doesn't have a master's in English as I'm the only one in this conversation that doesn't like, (laughs) how are those like two separate like creative processes and why do writer's rooms are more successful with more people versus like, why can't someone just write a TV show by themselves? Like they could a movie. Yeah. Um, so people try sometimes to write TV shows by themselves. I have a friend, well, a friend, a guy I worked with who wrote the first four episodes of his own show himself. Um, that's a lot, in my opinion. I think there's somebody, I won't say because I'm not sure if I'm supposed to know that or not. There's somebody right now that's trying to write 10 episodes themselves, which I think is, I don't know why you would want to. Um, I think the, the main thing is that television is more writing. It's more stories. And it's more open-ended and especially comedy. It's like comedy are stories that have to reset at the end of the day so that you can tell the same story in a different way. Again, you know, like you, your characters, you don't want them to change as much as like a limited series drama or something where you can see the arc from the outset. You don't know with TV whether it's going to end tomorrow or 10 years from now. So you need as many ideas as you can get. And also the production schedule of TV is much more demanding. You don't get to finish and then shoot oftentimes. I mean, sometimes yeah. you do, but oh, more often it's like you start, you start shooting and you're still writing, you know, and you're still going and then maybe you're waiting for the network to tell you if you need to write nine more episodes or if you're done at 10 or like whatever. Um, so I think just for that reason, you need more brain power in the room versus like a movie you can have all the time in the world. There's no rush on a movie. Write a movie. You know, I mean, you get hired to write a movie and you have a deadline, there's a rush. But like, if you just wanted to write a movie on your own, you could just sit there. Same with a novel. Like, no one's dying and waiting for that novel to come out. Like, yeah. it could come out tomorrow, it could come out in 15 years. Like, probably doesn't, you know, matter. It's going to be the same. And it's also like, you know, you have the con- creative control over knowing the beginning and the middle of the end, of, you know, 
all in one and before you have to start basically. Um, so TV is different. I, I thought, cause I was writing novels before and I'm a solitary kind of, I don't know. I'm a weird person. Sometimes I think I'm solitary. Sometimes I think I'm very social, but um, I thought I wouldn't like, I never, never liked group work. Like I was like that student, you know, in class who was like, fuck group work. I'm going to get a C because of these dumb people. I don't want to work with people like this sucks. You know, let me just do it. I'd be a little asshole. Um, But the writer's room is amazing because everybody, when it's a good room, you elevate each other. So as funny as you are, that becomes just a jumping off point for eight different funny things that get built on top of it. So everything you write is better. And you learn from people who are better than you. And that, and it takes the pressure off of you to come up with all the answers as well. So like you can feel good about contributing like 25% of the story that went versus needing to come up with 100% of it. And for me, sometimes that's delightful to not have to do all of the work. (laughs) So I love that. Um, I have two questions. First one, how many people are usually in a writer's room? It depends. The ones I've been in have been, I think, 12 people and eight people. Mm. So kind of on the smaller side. Um, there are rooms that are closer to 20, but that's becoming oh, rarer. Wow. rarer. I think, it seems to me right now that the average sits around 12, I would, cool. I would say. So of those 12 people, do you feel like a certain writer will kind of own a character or do you feel like you all kind of contribute equally across the board to the story? Well, it's interesting, like being a woman and being a woman of color, you know who you were hired. Oh, <laughs> like to write? Kind of know who you were. Like, yeah. I, the, both of the shows I've been on needed that perspective because those were characters in the show, you know? And so I think you do get, there are hiring decisions that are made based off of who could speak to the different characters. Mm-hmm. But once you're in the room, you you have to be able to do all of them. Mm-hmm. It still might be the case where they'll lean on you for some stuff. So like, it's like, oh, this, she's young, you know, she's young, she's brown, or maybe she's young, she's a single mom, Brittany. In this situation, what would you do? Mm-hmm. As a way to like start the conversation. That might not be the answer that ends up happening, but like you do want people in the room who have some authenticity to the characters that are yeah. in the show. But you don't own, I mean, Sometimes people come to own them, but most I would say. Yeah. Well, and also I feel like you couldn't, I mean, again, speaking of the ego and the writer's room, you have to set that aside, right? Because even if you feel an affinity for the character, if, you know, your coworker comes up with something better, that's got to go. Yes. Yeah. It's best idea wins. And yeah, no hurt feelings. Cry in the bathroom if you have to. I love it. (laughs) How do you come to decisions if there's 12 people in the room and how do you decide what piece of dialogue gets in the show? So it's the showrunner. We have a, a very clear boss. There's a clear top of the food chain. Um, and then there's a pretty clear like hierarchy from there, depending on the show, like the people who know better than you and have worked more than you. I'm at the bottom of the totem pole because uh, I'm new, which is great by me. Um, but yeah, there's a showrunner who's ultimately responsible for the tone of the show and the performance of the show. And so they have final say. So you're really working for them um, to, to help them create the best thing that they can create to take to the studio, take to the network. Um, And so, and then in addition to that, there, a writer will get assigned to a script. So there's a script where it's, it's you, then the showrunner, you know, so you get some say, like, for example, um, when I was writing my scripts, it's like, as a room, we broke the outline for the story and all the beats that were supposed to be in there. But when it was time to actually write the dialogue, write the script, that's me. I go home, I spend a week at home 
I write all the dialogue. I do, there will be some dialogue suggestions from the outline already, but like all the other stuff that you're filling in, the jokes and everything, that's on you to, to really sh shine and do the best work you can so that when you come to the room, there's not as many revisions that need to be done. Um, so you have ownership over like a piece of it like that. But again, if the showrunner's like, I don't like that joke, then you don't argue. Then it's not going in. It is not, then that's like, all right, come up with another one, pitch five more. Like, yeah, can't be precious about anything. Yeah. Well, what a good lesson for a writer for, like you know, it. yeah, it's, it's, I mean, people do get hurt feelings, you know, and, yeah. and sometimes you do have to just be like in your head, be like, I, this mine was funnier, you know, but you just move on. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Love that. Yeah. I mean, I think just coming from academia, I mean, Brittany and I can both relate to like the egos of people in academia, like God forbid you, you know, question question anyone's question baby basically yeah question the the professor so I love I love kind of that that creative room but um Maddie do you have any more questions or I mean I feel like I had many other topics but we may have to have Brittany back for another episode yeah we might I'll have to talk all day long. I so love many it things yeah no I was just I guess as a, a an ending point do you do you have time for your own creative projects like what are you working on or is your mind just fried at the end of the day writing no, other you, people's characters like how do you balance yeah, when it all you're, when you're in the room uh you most I mean I I did write a pilot like I did finish a pilot while I was in one of the rooms because I had to like I needed samples and so I just I don't know how that I wrote on lunch I think it was insane yeah. that hurts it hurts to do that so mostly I think people, when they're in the room, they think, okay, I'm dedicated to the room and this show while I'm in the room. And as soon as you break, and you typically will have a break of, of one month to many months, I'm going on six months now of, of a break, then you'll write all of your other stuff. That's, well, at least that's what the, most of the writers that I know do. I mean, there are cases where like, I know some people that are out pitching on their own shows while they're writing on a show. I'm still learning. So that is exhausting to me. And also I need to prove myself. So I really have to like be super dedicated to the shows that I'm on right now, which I would be anyway, I think, but you know, um, but anyways, lots of long way of saying you have breaks and that's when you work on your own stuff. Yeah. I have another question that this just brought up a conversation that we had many, many years ago when we were in grad school. And I remember you and I talking about just being like blown away at the number of people who hadn't had a professional career and would they'd be like, Oh, I'm pulling another all nighter. And we'd be like, yeah, well you slept in until two o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon. Like it's really not that much work. How do you feel like your experience both kind of in a more traditional nine to five and then as an academic and a professor influences your process and the way that you work now? Because I also imagine as a mom, that's really important to figure out what that looks like. Yes, I I am a fan of scheduling and I am a fan of people having a real job before they do a creative job because. Amen. Uh, yeah, I have a real job, have a corporate job and work as a waitress. Get some fucking perspective on your shit because people I think are so indulgent when they're writers and it's really a way of just procrastinating and not forcing yourself to do the disciplinary work of having a regular schedule. Um, being a mom helps a lot. Honestly, like people ask me a lot, like my, my friends that are not, that are writers, that are not mothers. They're like, I don't know how you do it. And I'm like, it's actually easier. Isn't the right word, but it's more organized because it has to be because when mm -hmm. he's up and awake and I'm mothering, I can't be writing. So I better do it when I can. Otherwise, I'm going to be screwed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm super grateful for the, all the experiences I had before coming to this. And I would encourage anybody listening who's doing creative work, like, and you're feeling like overwhelmed, procrastinated, sucks, blah, blah, blah. Go volunteer at a regular type of job or go get a regular job for a little while and like, let it work itself on you. Like let the discipline that's required to do that, like work its way into your writing practice. And I think you'll be amazed by how much better and more sane you are. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. It's great advice. Awesome. All right. Shall we go into the archery range? Yes. We are now moving into the archery range. Brittany, we will ask you a series of rapid fire questions. Um, If we ask you a favorite, it doesn't have to be the top favorite of all time, just a favorite that comes to mind. Um, Don't overthink it. And here we go. Uh, Ready? Okay. Okay. Favorite book? Portnoy's Complaint. I knew it. Uh, favorite TV show? Broad City. Mm. Favorite movie? Clueless. Love it. I love it. Um, favorite place you've traveled but never lived? Paris. Ooh. Favorite childhood snack? Fruit roll-ups. Mm. Favorite year of school? Seventh grade. Nice. All right, I'm asking a new one that we've never asked before. New York or L.A.? LA, which mm-hmm. I'm shocked by. Yeah. For which reason? Yeah. We can deviate. So I for recently a little went bit. I recently went back to New York because I was like, I need to go back to the city that I love so much. And when I was there, I realized I fell in love with East LA, specifically East LA and the art community that's here. It's 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 really grown on me in a shocking way. Because I yeah, it's a shocking answer to me. <laughs> I I hear you, but I also feel like when you can do LA Right, right. You know, like you're not doing like a three hour commute every day. Yeah. And you, it, it's just like, because now every time I go to LA to visit, like when I lived there, I didn't like it. But when I go there to visit now, I'm just like, oh, that's so, like the energy is so great. And this so beautiful. And this neighborhood is so great. And then, um, so I, I always, that's always my caveat about LA. Like if you can do it right, it's a pretty sweet place to live. Yeah. There are, there are 1,000 different LAs. Yeah. I like yeah. the one that I'm in. <laughs> that's awesome. Great. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Is there any place, Brittany, that if you want to be found on the internet, that people can find you? If not? Oh, God. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm on IMDb, but I am not a great social media person. Um, Just look out for Woke on Hulu. I can't wait. I had not heard it. I I had not heard about Woke until this moment. So I'm definitely going to put it on my watch list. It sounds great. What is the what is the the people can Google it, but what what do you like about Woke? What is it about? Who would uh, enjoy it's it? Loosely based off of this black cartoonist Keith Knight and his experience living in uh, San Francisco. So it's Bay Area set. I'm a Bay Area girl. Mm. And it's got a funny gambit, which is that he's a cartoonist whose drawings come to life and start fucking with him. Hence so, Woke. Fun. Like many different plays yeah. on that. You I know, love it. It works in all levels. Yeah. <laughs> That's very awesome. Very clever over here. <laughs> Very cool. So good. good. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank this was guys. amazing. This was so much fun. Yay. All right, listeners, we will see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, Resident Youth, and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield. And this episode was recorded in Maddie's living room. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com and you can visit us 
at campadulthood.com. Thanks, campers. We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood.